According to a report from the Tufts Center for the Study of Drug Development, it costs pharmaceutical companies roughly $2.6 billion to develop a new drug, more than three times the amount estimated in 2003. The announcement comes at a time when the high price tag for many new drugs, such as Gilead Sciences' Sovaldi, have led to questions from policymakers, physicians, and the general public. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Jerry Avorn, a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and Chief of the Division of Pharmacoepidemiology and Pharmacoeconomics at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Dr. Avorn has written a perspective article on the $2.6 billion figure and drug development. Dr. Avorn, the same Tufts group calculated the cost of developing a new drug in 2003, and at that time, the figure was $802 million. Are there legitimate reasons why the cost of drug development might have increased so much faster than one would expect with inflation? Maybe the best place to start is to say that it's very hard to know what to make of any of these numbers, whether the old numbers or the new numbers, because we are not permitted to see the drugs on which the estimates are based or to know what they are or which companies provided the numbers or any other details of that nature. And so before getting drawn into why is it as high as it is or why is it rising, I think it's useful to spend a moment just saying, is this really the kind of economic analysis that one would expect to see in a pharmacoeconomic study if we can't really get to the source information to find out what to make of whether it's accurate or not? In terms of the 2003 figure, did that information ever become apparent? Well, it was published in the Journal of Health Economics about a year after that press release or press conference. But again, part of the methods that were the terms under which the investigators were able to get the information from the companies was that they needed to accept the idea that the companies would never be identified and the hundred or so substances that were the subject of the analysis would never be identified either. And so all the numbers are essentially those provided by unnamed companies about unnamed products for which the source data will never be revealed. And if the past is any guide, when that was published in the economic literature, the same provisos applied. So we'll probably never know any more than we did last time what the companies are, what the drugs are, and what the raw data were. Even if we take the numbers at face value, you note that nearly half the cost of developing a new drug is ascribed by the Tufts group to the cost of capital, not to funds spent on actual research. Why is that cost of capital number so high? Well, part of it is based on the assumption that there's a plausible assumption and then a bit of a stretch assumption. The plausible assumption is that whenever any company invests in anything, the money that it needs to use for that investment cannot be used for anything else. And so there is an opportunity cost that needs to be taken into account. And that makes sense. Where things make less sense, in my view, is that the cost of that capital, which extends over many, many years, because the argument that is being made by them is that the dollars are tied up for very long, which is true, but it is ascribed as a cost of 10.6% per year for the cost of that capital. And that's probably why it reached a sum that was almost half of the entire cost of developing a drug. Now, in looking into that aspect of the analysis, I went to the economics and finance literature and looked at what companies have been selling their bonds for, uh, U.S. major drug manufacturers, over the last several years. 
as a measure, not just a proxy, but an actual measure of what it costs them to borrow money or to use money for an extended period of time. And they have, over many years, been selling bonds at a rate of 1% to 5% because they're very good credit risks because they are such lucrative companies. And so it's hard to understand if a company can write a bond and get four or five or have to pay four or five percent to borrow that money. It's not clear why the Tufts investigators said that it costs them 10.6 percent a year to tie up those dollars. And the largest fraction of the 2.6 billion was actually attributed to the cost of compounds that fail early in development, problems with safety, lack of efficacy. Are there ways that companies can choose compounds more efficiently or identify the problems earlier in the process to avoid some of that expense? That's an important point. And again, it's perfectly fair to say that the cost of bringing a successful new drug to market does need to take into account all the money that gets spent on the cost of developing drugs that don't make it to market, either because it turns out that they have unacceptable side effects or they don't work as well as expected or whatever. So Again, that aspect of the analysis in concept is plausible. But when one hears discussion about why are drugs so expensive and what can be done to reduce the cost, that often, not by these investigators, but by the industry in general, gets conflated with the idea that, well, the FDA is so slow and they have all these requirements of safety and efficacy. And if you really piece out where the cost comes from, It really is not because FDA or any of the other international drug approval bodies are taking very long. They're actually doing things rather briskly. It's really the cost of all the drugs that fail. Now, inherently, drug development is a risky business, no question about it. And we certainly cannot know in advance which drugs are going to be winners or which drugs are going to have unexpected hepatotoxicity or QT prolongation or something else that may not be expected initially. But I think in thinking about the cost and the science, it is important to appreciate that really the reason that drugs are so challenging to develop is that for whatever reason, we are not, we, I mean the scientific community, are not as good as we ought to be in identifying which drugs are going to turn out to have either unacceptable safety problems or efficacy that doesn't pan out. And people who've observed the industry have wondered whether perhaps if the pharmaceutical industry could be more adept at identifying drugs that are going to have safety problems somewhat earlier, whether through biomarkers or better toxicity studies or drugs that are not going to have their efficacy pan out, that that would be a very effective way for there not to be as many losers as there are. According to the Tufts study, and again, we can't be able to validate that because the numbers are from sources that remain secret, but the estimate that they make is that 80% of new compounds fail and only 20% make it to market. So I think a very productive way of thinking about the problem would be to see whether industry might become more efficient at spotting either efficacy shortfalls or safety problems earlier on before they get deeply into clinical trials, and how can they manage to do a more efficient job of that than they are now doing. The Tufts estimate doesn't consider drug development costs that are borne by the public for a large number of pharmaceuticals. How much does government funding contribute to the development of drugs in general, and should that be accounted for in future estimates of this number? The contribution of the public sector, whether it is through the National Institutes of Health or the National Science Foundation, or even organizations like the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, 
that contribute so heavily to biomedical research tends to get ignored in a lot of these studies of how expensive it is for companies to develop drugs. But if we're going to have a national policy that looks at this issue of discovering new treatments that is even-handed and comprehensive, we can't ignore the fact that an awful lot of perhaps the majority of the major insights about whether it's receptors or genes or any other mechanism that a drug is designed to target, most of that is in fact developed in the public sector in academic medical centers or universities with uh, public dollars from NIH or another source. And ignoring that aspect of the total life cycle of the drug from key basic science insight to a product that a doctor can write a prescription for, ignoring that first piece really does a disservice to an understanding of what it takes to get a new drug. And that's particularly relevant at a time when the source of that basic science research, namely NIH and other publicly funded research funding sources, is really on the rocks in terms of having budgets that are as low as we've seen for a decade and a half. And so if the purpose of this exercise is to say, what is it going to take to be able to have a lot of important new discoveries of medications in the next 10 or 20 years, looking only at what the companies spend is really ignoring a very important piece of where new drugs actually come from. Finally, you write in your article that despite the high cost of drug development, the pharmaceutical and biotech industries are very profitable. And the companies spent only a fraction of their revenues on truly innovative research. Do you have any ideas about how to make new pharmaceutical products more affordable while still encouraging innovation? This is an issue that actually the nation is going to get to debate and legislate about in the next year or two, because there are bills making their way through Congress that are seeking to make the approval standards for new products, in my view, somewhat looser than they currently are and to provide more generous exclusivity or patent-like protection for the companies once they have a drug on the market. In my view, in a sense, we've made it a little bit too easy for companies to keep extending patents after they expire by patenting the coating or the shape or the color or the other aspects that are not really therapeutic in nature. And in addition, we have not fostered the innovation that would spring up If we were to say, as the founding fathers intended when they wrote the patent legislation into the basic laws of our country in the 18th century, that we want to favor innovation by protecting innovators for a finite period of time, and then that protection is designed to come to an end to spur more innovation. And the more we make it easier for products that may not work so well to get approved or make it easier to just keep extending exclusivity rights beyond what was intended by the original writers of our patent law hundreds of years ago, the more we actually will suppress innovation because it's much easier to just hire lawyers to extend your patent on your existing drugs than it is to engage in the very demanding work that requires the discovery of a new drug. So I think in terms of fostering innovation, there's a lot that we can do by just, in a sense, holding the industry's feet to the fire and saying, if you would like to have large profits, then you need to make big new discoveries. And as far as affordability... I think there's a nationwide conversation that has been started by the $1,000 appeal hepatitis C drugs. And we need to ask, well, if a lot of that work was really generated with public funding, as in the case of Savaldi it was, how does the arithmetic work that the government then gets to pay twice, once for the discovery of the drug, 
And then again, $84,000 for a course of therapy as it was initially priced. Maybe we need to debate more about where those numbers come from and is that in fact something we should expect the American taxpayer or patient or insurance subscriber to have to pay those prices for. Thank you, Dr. Avon.